0: Uh, we'll take your Bibles this morning and, and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, in chapter seven, uh, this morning we're receiving communion uh, together. We're sharing in communion together, and we are are interweaving that between uh, two amazing stories, in, in between and after uh, two amazing stories in Mark's Gospel. Uh, but before we, we get to those stories. Uh, I, I think it's important at, at this juncture in our study of the life and ministry of Christ through, the, through Mark's gospel uh, to see these stories in context. Uh, there's a word that the Jews use, the Hebrews use for authority, and it's the word rashut. Sound, everybody say that, rashut. One more time, Rashut. It sounds authoritative, doesn't it? It's automatopoeia. You remember that word from your grammar? <laughs> uh, it's a word that sounds like what it is. Authority. It's an authoritative sounding word, Rashut. Authority for the Jews, for the Hebrews, was huge, absolutely huge. The authority that they saw that that was carried within the scriptures, that was carried within uh, those oral traditions Josh spoke about last week, which were man-made laws that were handed down by rabbis and teachers over generations upon generations upon generations, all those traditions, all those customs were were considered absolute authority authority in their lives. And and those religious leaders in Jesus' day saw themselves as the fierce protectors of that authority. And so here comes Jesus, really from the very outset of his ministry, challenging that authority one time after the other. Continuously challenging that authority, we saw last week where, the, remember, the religious leaders had accused. the first part of chapter seven, the religious leaders had accused Jesus of allowing his disciples to eat their food with unclean hands, with cleans that had not been ritually washed ahead of time. And if, and, and what they believed, their tradition said, if if they ate food with unclean, with unritually washed hands ahead of time, then that made the food they ate unclean. And if they ate unclean food, they put that food inside their bodies, then that made themselves unclean. And so Jesus is addressing that with them, and he gets right in their face. And not only does he get in their face, but he gathers a huge crowd around him to make the point that those ancient traditions and those ancient teachings are not God's Word, that what goes into a person's body is not what defiles them, is not what makes them unclean, but it's what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person's heart that makes them unclean. In fact, Mark says, in doing so, Jesus was in effect, he says in verse 19, that Jesus was in effect declaring that all foods, all foods are clean. All foods are clean, including, as Josh wonderfully shared last week, bacon, (laughs) right? And and as a Memphis guy, I I would have to gloriously add to that barbecue pulled pork (laughs) as well. It is hard for us. To really fully grasp the intensity that was taking, that was a part of this scene, that engulfed this scene, again, as Jesus is getting right in the face of these religious leaders challenging their authority with the truth of God. I mean, you can almost see their faces flush with rage in the process. In fact, so much to the point Jesus challenged those tr- traditions and customs and, and teachings and, and their authority so much that they, decided, they ultimately decided that they were going to plot to kill him. And Jesus knows that. Uh, the cross didn't come as a surprise to him. He knew that the cross awaited him at this point. And he had a, a divine inner sense that was going to tell him when the time for the cross had arrived. But he was also going to make sure that that did not happen sooner than God's appointed time. And so after he has this very heated exchange with the religious leaders in the first part of Mark chapter 7, that divine internal compass that Christ possessed is telling him that it's it's time to back off a little bit and get away. Get away, relieve some of the pressure. And so we read there in verse 24 that Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. If you would take a look at this this map, there we go, Uh, you can see up in the northwest, that is Tyre. That's actually outside the boundaries of Israel. That was a big time, a big, big time Gentile area. Uh, A Gentile, remember, essentially it was anybody who was not a Jew. Anybody who was not a Jew. And they considered anybody who was not a Jew to be an unclean person. Again, simply because of, of who they were externally. Now, remember what it meant to be unclean. It didn't mean that somebody needed to, a you know, hot bath and a, and a big bar of lava soap. <laughs> um, uh, it, it was much, much worse than that. What it meant that a person was unclean was that they had no place of participation in any kind of worship with God's people. No place in worship. They they could not even enter the temple. They couldn't even enter the synagogue. No place of worship, but much deeper than that, much worse than that. They would say that an unclean person like the Gentiles would have no place of relationship with God himself. No hope, no eternal hope, no relationship with God. So... As Jesus goes into this Gentile area, <clears throat> obviously that, that's kind of a safe place because these religious leaders are not going to follow him there and risk the possibility of coming into contact with anybody who was unclean. So Jesus goes there to get some R&R. And by the way, we, we just talked about the fact that Jesus, in essence, had declared all foods to be clean. By going into this Gentile area, he is also declaring that all people, all people, are clean. However, he does leave us wondering just a little here as this story unfolds. It's uh, it's it's fascinating. Verse twenty four. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. Now the, the news about Jesus and the wonders that he had, 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 had brought about to, had brought to happen had, had spread far and wide, including the people up up in this Gentile area of Tyre and ultimately in Sidon as well. So no wonder he couldn't keep his presence a secret. Verse twenty-five. In fact. As soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, this woman knows as she comes to Jesus that she's coming with three strikes against her. First of all, she just barges in without asking for permission to come in. (laughs) And second of all, she knows that she as a Gentile and a woman is approaching a Jewish male who comes from a culture that is highly male-oriented. But third of all, she knows that as a Gentile, not to mention a Gentile with a demon-possessed daughter that has an unclean spirit, she knows very well that any respectable Jew would consider her to be unclean and thereby would not want to be in contact with her. Yet in spite of those barriers, she approaches Jesus. She begs him to heal her daughter. That word beg there means that she didn't just ask once, but she kept on begging. Look at Jesus' response in verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want,' he told her, "'for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs.'" I mean, you read that and you go, whoa, <laughs> I mean, is Jesus having a bad day here or what? You know, what, what in the world is going on? Well, as a master teacher, for the purpose of building faith, Jesus w- would sometimes, more than sometimes, employ what theologians refer to as deliberately induced frustration. Now, a great example of this it had happened just the chapter previous to this, in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, Jesus had been teaching this enormous crowd all day long. It got, got late in the day. The disciples suggest to him at that point, Jesus, you know, you really need to send these people home so they can get something to eat. You remember how Jesus replied? He said, you feed them. <laughs> So uh, the, the disciples look at themselves and well, say, well, 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 "Well, Jesus, said, that would take that would take over eight months' wages to feed these people. Do you really just want us to spend that much money on, on these people?" Huh. Deliberately induce frustration for the purpose of building faith. If you remember how that story came out, <laughs> well, Jesus was testing this woman in the same way that he had tested his disciples. Uh, so it was probably with a bit of a twinkle in his eye that he says to her, I have come first for the Jews. And it is not right to take their bread, the children's bread, and give it to the dogs. Well, she's not shocked to be addressed in that way because she knows very well that the Jews commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. Now, in, in our day, you know, when our you know dogs in our day are are domesticated and treasured so from our perspective you know it it seems like it would have made a lot more sense had Jesus instead of calling them dogs that the Jews would have called them cats right no, no. could couldn't couldn't resist couldn't resist <laughs> actually in that society in Jesus day most dogs were not domesticated. They were wild, dirty scavengers that roamed the streets day and night. But there's something that I think there's no doubt that caught this woman's attention in the word that Jesus uses here for dogs. It was a very rare word that refers to puppies or little dogs. In other words, Jesus is not referring to those big, wild, dirty dogs roaming the streets, but He's referring to what would have been a much more rare little small dog that even households in that day kept inside. In fact, it, 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 Mark doesn't say this, but, but I wouldn't be surprised if the home that he was in, the house he was in, it maybe had a little dog at that point. Dogs like our little dog named Millie that unfortunately died this, this, uh, this past year. But when Millie was around, and our our grandkids were still taking their meals in high chairs. Now, you've seen how this works. Um, You know, some food would be accidentally spilled to the floor, and Millie would gobble that up. But then it didn't take them long as as they got a little bit older to figure out they could have this fun little game where they could actually throw food onto the floor, and Millie would eat it up. I mean, we rarely had to even clean the four because Millie would, would eat everything up, everything that was accidentally dropped as well as that which was intentionally tossed her way. Well, that's the kind of dog that Jesus is talking about here. That's the kind of dog. He's essentially opening the door for faith on her part, on this woman's part. And sure enough, she steps right through it. Look at her reply in verse 28. Lord... She replied, very likely with a twinkle in her eye as well. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. <laughs> She's saying, I accept that I'm a little dog, but that means that I at least get some of the Jews' crumbles. I mean, it's an amazing response on her part in a couple of different ways. First of all, her faith was so persistent you know yes, obviously she has a, a a very deep concern for her child, for her daughter, but she's also expressing here a real hope and the compassion and power of Christ, and we should ask ourselves, you know when it comes to dealing with crisis in our own lives, whatever those might be, are we just as quick to trust the goodness and the power of Christ? Are we willing to persist in faith or do we just? Kind of tend to give up too easy. Do we persist in prayer, persistently trusting in the heart of Christ? And notice that her response also was amazing because of her humility. I mean, she she was just called a dog, but, but she she doesn't stomp off in a rebuffed huff saying, Oh, I, I dare he call me a dog. No. She humbly accepted the fact that there was really nothing about her or who she was that deserved Christ's help. What humility is that? She was depending completely upon the goodness of Christ and not on any of her own. She was saying, Lord, please, please give me what I know I do not deserve, purely on the basis of your goodness. Verses 29 and 30. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So Jesus just provided for this woman what he provided for everyone else who ever came to him seeking his help, who had a need. We're about to begin sharing together in communion, But let's make sure that our hearts are prepared to do so this morning. You see, that the bread that Jesus ultimately gave to his children was what? It was the bread of life, of life. It was the bread of his life. The only bread that truly fills and satisfies. And then part of the great irony of this story is that when Jesus died on the cross for us, He became a dog so that all of us who are dogs might become his children. He wants us to come to his table this morning with hungry hearts, desiring to be filled again, and with humble hearts, overwhelmed with gratitude by his goodness to us. That night in the upper room gathered with his disciples the night before Jesus was crucified. He took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body given for us upon the cross. Well, next we read in Mark chapter 7 and verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. And went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand upon him. Now, this was also a Gentile region. He went northwest to Sidon and then really kind of circled back down toward the Sea of Galilee and off to the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, again, which was a predominantly Gentile area as well. Verse 33a, after he took him aside, away from the crowd. Now, notice, please take note, Jesus does not pull this man out in front of the crowd to make a big faith healer kind of a show out of all this does he I mean it's with great love and compassion that he he pulls him pulls the man aside he pulls him away from the crowd now think about this someone who, who is deaf someone who, who has never heard has never heard speech and therefore they are unable to produce that they can make sounds but not intelligible speech The church I grew up in in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, that was was, where I was born, uh, went to that church from the time I was born to the time that I I left for college, had a very large deaf ministry. Something I was hoping to do here at at some point, if if anybody's interested (laughs) this morning in doing so. But I still remember when I was little, hearing some of those who were deaf trying to speak and as they did so, again, they were able, they were not able to make words. They were just able to make sounds. And they were loud sounds because they didn't have a sense of volume. And to be quite honest with you, as a kid, it kind of weirded me out. So just imagine what kind of intense scrutiny this man had been under, how he had been treated for all his life. Oh, look what Jesus does next, verse 33, second part. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven. What's Jesus doing? I love what one commentator observes. He's, he's saying that what Jesus is doing is he's essentially using sign language. I mean, he's entering this man's world. He's connecting with him emotionally. He's putting his fingers in his ears, essentially saying, I, I'm going to do something about your hearing. He touches his mouth. He touches his tongue, in essence, saying, I'm going to help you with your talking. He looks up to heaven with him, saying, Let's look up to heaven now because it's, this is going to be by the grace of God. <clears throat> then Mark says in verse 34, And with a deep sigh, Jesus said to him, Epheta, Epheta, be opened. Verse 35, at this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. As I went through this, I couldn't help but think back to some of those people, dear, dear people that I knew back in Memphis, some who were parents of of kids that became good friends of mine. As to to how, How amazing this would have been had it happened to one of them. Literally, the verse says, the man's ears were opened and the chain on his tongue was loosened. In other words, (laughs) Jesus sets free yet another captive. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now make careful note. Here, because Mark intends us as the readers to make a very important connection with that last statement when he said, even he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In fact, just a couple of verses earlier as he's telling this story, when he, the word that he uses for death is only used one other time in the Bible, and that's in the book of Isaiah in chapter 35. In fact, let's, let's look at that. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Verse 35, uh, chapter 35, verses 4 to 6. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. You hear what Mark is saying? That statement he's saying, you are seeing these things happen right now with Jesus. Uh, the, The deaf hear, the mute speak, they shout for joy. The lame leap. The Messiah has come. God has come near. The kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And what about that divine retribution that he's talking about there? That divine retribution, he says, which will come to save you. Where is that? It's right here. This is what we're remembering this morning. As one author writes, Jesus didn't come to bring retribution. He came to bear it to bear it upon the cross for us. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God says it was on the cross that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, in that upper room that night before Christ went to the cross. We read in Matthew, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood poured out for our forgiveness